Warning. The following podcast is for entertainment purposes only. Trespassing is not only illegal, but often incredibly dangerous. The hosts do not condone any activities that could put their listeners in harm's way, and encourage you to proceed with caution and do your research before exploring the unknown. We cannot be held liable for any accidents, injury, or hauntings that may occur. Listener discretion is advised. Welcome to the stage, Wendy Williams, apparently, because we're just going to be watching her content today instead of working. Is that what you want? Is that your goal for this podcast? My issue this week is that it's not a Wendy Williams-themed podcast. I, my issue is that our mics aren't bedazzled like hers. We could make that happen. I mean, I was telling Nathan yesterday, I was like, I cannot wait in one week. When when I need to do podcast stuff, I can walk across the hall. Right. Uh, it's so quiet. It is quiet. Compared to normal. I, I feel know. like there's normally a lot of background noise and stuff yeah. going on. Well, that's because we have some slightly superior... I say slightly. It's um, quite a bit of an upgrade <clears throat> software-wise, I yeah. would say, considering we were using free shit before and we're actually paying for this. Wow. Wonderful. Truly head of the fucking world. Yeah. I'm a little afraid that Brownie is going to, like, belch because he keeps making this face. He's been having some stomach issues because when is he not? Oh, my God. That reminds me. Let me read you this tweet. I sent it to my brother earlier because he was talking about Brownie a couple days ago. And uh, this this tweet says, Laughing until I cry because this guy's dog just started taking a dump in the middle of the street and cars started honking and the guy yelled, you're stressing him out. He dead ass has IBS. <laughs> that is... comes to us from uh, Sophie Bramnick on Twitter. 
Thank you, Sophie. You've described my dog's entire existence. Period. He's just staring at me right now like I can't believe you would out me like this. Little does he know that the abandonment issues are no more. Instead, this is the Wendy Williams and Brownie Roast podcast. (laughs) Death to all of them. Goodbye. Oh, God, okay. we really can't make this a Wendy Williams show. We will be here all day. Yeah. This, we might as well just set up the mics 24-hour live stream style. Yeah, and, and it's just, just us coming and going and talking about Wendy Williams and Brownie's <laughs> gastrointestinal issues. And another thing. <laughs> it's just, okay, imagine this, okay? You're in the spare room of our apartment. Or, well, it's, it's a little disingenuous to call it the spare room. You're in the office. The office. The camera is just pointed at our desk. There's a blank wall behind it, and then you hear a door slam into the wall, and you hear just <laughs> panting, and then we rush into the frame, fucking skid out into the chairs, and we're just like, did y'all see what Wendy Williams said this week? And it doesn't matter, like, it's always going to be something, you know? There, I feel like there does not go by a week anymore where Wendy Williams isn't doing some whack shit on her show. She's so funny. I love her so much. She's ridiculous. Problematic queen. I don't think she's problematic. Um, Did you see that one where she was talking about that TikTok kid that died? Oh, yeah, where she was like, raise your hand or clap if you know him. And like nobody clapped. Anyway, he's dead. (laughs) Wendy. I have more Instagram followers than him. Anyway. No. Oh, oh, is that what she said? That's what Wendy. She was was like, like, I have more Instagram followers than him. Jesus, Wendy. Anyway, he passed away on Monday. God. All right, well, let's get into this mess. So, yeah, you better chug that monster. I still got a little bit of Red Bull left. We have a nice color palette going on today. Yeah. Besties. All right. Ooh. Get up in that. It's our ASMR channel now. Scared Brownie. <laughs> I feel like we make an ASMR joke like once per episode. <laughs> Probably. Did I tell you my boss was like, I'm going to do ASMR from now on? Is that his new career goal? Yeah, he's going to oh, he's gonna start an OnlyFans where he like steps on food, and he's also going to do ASMR. But he told me that I had to edit it because he can't handle the sounds. <laughs> <laughs> like, he didn't oh know what God. it was, and I showed him the pickle eating video that that woman did. I don't know if I know about that. I'll show I you don't later. I don't know if I want to know. I'll show you later. Pickles but... gross me out. <laughs> she just like bit into the pickle and it's one of them honking ones too and uh-huh. he was like very upset about it i think that's one of my favorite things about like the asmr community as a whole not like i'm very in depth with it like i don't really i don't know much about it but people either just love it or they just fucking hate it like visceral hate For the listeners, Zach is gearing up for a, <coughs> that. That there was an awful lot of fanfare for that, and not a whole lot of payoff. It was so sad. I could feel it right here, and I thought it was gonna be like yeah. one of the thirty second ones. It looked like it was about to just like <sighs> burst out of you, like an alien. Yeah. <clears throat> oh, well, no. aliens. Don't talk about aliens. You want to talk about Men in Black? I almost did UFOs, and then I was like, no. You would not sleep. And that's why I was like, I gotta go to bed at some point. I can't do UFOs. Okay, well, hello. Okay. 
Can you tell we haven't recorded in like a month? Yeah, it's uh, it's been a, a cool minute, but we'll get into that. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Abandonment Issues. It is a podcast about the past, the paranormal, and the just plain perplexing. And can you believe that I have memorized that and I didn't read it from my phone this time for the first time ever? You didn't say periodical podcast. Are you fucking serious? <laughs> Fuck! <laughs> Let me try it again. <laughs> Take... I was so proud of myself. <laughs> Fuck you, stop laughing. I'm so mad. Ugh. Are you done? Like, is it over? <laughs> the confidence. Anyway, <clears throat> I'm good. <clears throat> now, my, now my resolve is shaken. I don't know if I can go on. Hello, everyone, and welcome to The Abandonment Issues, a periodical podcast about the past, the paranormal, and the just plain perplexing. And I got it that time. And I didn't look at my phone. Everybody, Period. please clap for me at home. On the first take. <laughs> yeah, no, I'm probably going to leave the fucked up one in there, but. Oh, my God. Who are you? Oh, <laughs> I don't even know anymore, man. I'm M, and I'm here today with. And the other one, Zach. <laughs> and we uh, we have some stories for you today if we can get through to it. We're struggling a little bit. Um, it's been... It's been a long time. How long would you say? We recorded when my brother was still here, and that was like over a month ago. Yeah, it's That been was the a, last time. Yeah, it's been a hot minute since we've actually recorded. Yeah. Oh my god. Lots, lots, has, lots has changed. Yeah. Um, I mean, not really, but <laughs> yeah, the more things change, the more they stay the same. Well. But, uh, we, uh, we do have a lot of shit going on in our lives right now. We're, uh, as of, let's see, as of right now, it is August 22nd when we're recording this, this should come out like, I don't know, in like a week and a half from our actually recording date. Uh, but we are actually about to move into an apartment together. We're they were roommates. Oh my god, they were roommates! Oh my god. So, that's fun and exciting. Um, <clears throat> the stress of moving, though, is like... <sighs> I hate moving. Here's a question for you. What's up? Um, how many times in your life have you moved? Okay, so... I moved out of my parents' house. Because we... Well... Okay, if we want to get into it. So, when I was born, my parents had, like, a single-wide trailer. Right. And then, whenever my mom got pregnant with my sister, they uh, upgraded to a double-wide trailer. Okay. And then, I lived there um, up until uh, I was 19. Okay. And then, from there, I moved into an apartment with my friend Kim. From there, I moved back home moved into the house with audra mm -hmm. and then moved back to my parents house and then i've moved into a new apartment and then now i'm moving in with you so seven okay i counted the other day i'm sitting at about 10 nice because there was the house i grew up in the house we moved into after that one um my mom's no, sorry. There was another one after that. My mom's current house. And then I moved into and out of college dorms three different times. Yeah. 
I had two different apartments when I lived in Johnson City, and then I moved back here. So, right. 10. And now it's about to be 11, actually. Yeah. <sighs> moving is exhausting. I hate moving. And I'm such a procrastinator. Yeah. Yeah. Case in point today. <laughs> um, <clears throat> but, like, I, I've started packing at my parents' house. Because mm-hmm. when I moved into this apartment, um, I didn't bring all the stuff with me because the apartment that i'm living in now is very small mm-hmm. so i was like i'm not gonna bring all my stuff in there it's gonna be a whole ordeal so i'll just bring what i need yeah and all my like fun knickknacks and stuff can just stay at my parents house but i started going through the stuff there all of it's for the most part packed up i think i'm gonna come back down tomorrow and yeah. finish that up so it's all like organized and ready to just throw into a car and go yeah but I haven't even started touching the apartment. Yeah. So. <clears throat> so, yeah, lots of things are changing. We have uh, new audio software that may or may not work for forever. Uh, <laughs> we'll find out. <laughs> we're trying some new stuff. We're moving. We got a lot going on. Brownie is sitting between us looking very sad right now. Uh, he doesn't. He's got a big storm coming. That poor kid. Poor kid. He's not going to know what to do. Yeah. But he loves Zach probably more than he loves me. So we've been talking for like 15 minutes, so we should probably get into it. All right, let's get into it. So who's going first again? I don't remember. Um, Well, that's a good question. What are we even doing? (laughs) My one story, the Cole story is going to be super long. Okay. So I figured what we could do is do the bummers first. Okay. And then bring it home with the happy ones okay. but also um i guess for the listeners that doesn't really that won't really come to fruition until the next upload yeah you're gonna have to wait like a full month to get closure uh, yeah so what we uh what we're doing today is we're because we're moving we're recording two episodes at once and we both kind of have a bummer story and a a, a more cheerful story so yeah. um we we kind of went back and forth a little bit on how to split those up, and I think what we're going to do is just do the bummers in one and then the happier ones in the other, and sorry. <laughs> listen, for y'all, you can listen to our podcast, yeah. you can decompress for mm-hmm. two weeks, you can listen to other things, whatever, yeah. but for us, we're going to sit here for four hours and just talk about sad stuff, so yeah. let's let's, you know... Yeah. For us, for our well-being, we're going to do the fun stuff last. Yeah. You know what? I'll go first. Go ahead. Go first. I'm excited okay. for you. Okay. So. <laughs> did you forget how to podcast? I did. It's been so long. Okay. So, um, we took a little field trip. We did. A while back. Uh, it was, what, two weeks ago? Three weeks ago now? Uh, a month yeah, ago now. Yeah, something like that. It's, it's, it's been like three weeks at least. It's been a while. My family decided to go to this place and kind of just hang out for the day. And then as soon as I left, I was like texting him and our assistant, uh, Veronica, that I really wanted us to go as a group. And so I dragged them along. I had a lot of fun. I hope. Did you? Oh, I had a great time. Yeah, yeah it, was, it was It was a lot of fun. It was um, very it feels kind of weird to say that I had a great time considering what the place is, but now that it's a museum. Now it's like a museum and like a tourist yeah. kind of thing, so I don't feel as bad. Mm-hmm. But, so, 
baby names? I've placed a book of baby names on the table because we keep calling her Veronica. That we is need to mix so it up. funny. So yeah. Oh uh, my God. Girls' names are in the front, but I honestly don't think she would really care if you just called her whatever. Sharon? Sharon. Mika? Mika. Ivory. I love that. Okay. Yeah. Uh. It's, it's, to clarify, it is my parents' book of baby names that they bought when I was like being considered. So uh, they're from 1996. Oh, baby. Okay, anyway, so the thing that I'm talking about today is, drumroll please, Brushy Mountain State Penitentiary. Woo! Woo. Oh, God, it's going to be so sad. Okay, so a little bit of backstory on Brushy. Um, So Brushy Mountain State Penitentiary was opened in 1896. It was a maximum security prison that remained operational up until 2009. It's located right against the Cumberland Mountains in the small town of Petros, Tennessee, or yeah, Petros, Tennessee, in Morgan County. Brushy was opened in nineteen, sorry, eighteen ninety-six after the aftermath of the Coal Creek War, um, a protest of coal miners that took place in the Coal Creek in Bryceville, Tennessee area. Before we can really get into Brushy, though, I kind of want to start with the Coal War uh, just a little yeah. bit, just to kind of lead into it. So. Coming off of uh, the Civil War, like uh, all the states in the South, Tennessee was very poor. Yeah. In my notes, I have poor with a capital P. Um, <laughs> yep. In an effort to uh, bring job opportunities to the state, post-war uh, railroad systems were built, and the opportunity to begin mining uh, the coal uh, was more accessible, the coal in the area. Um, the state's way of keeping working costs low while maintaining a huge profit in the coal mining field was to lease convicts to mine the coal instead of paying miners. Um, this practice, known as inmate leasing, began in 1866, and the state would then lease the inmates uh, to companies that were willing to pay for the inmates' housing in exchange for their labor. Yikes, yeah. And so this all started in 1871. Um, they began leasing convicts to um, Tennessee Coal, Iron, and Railway Company, uh, shortened TCI, um, which was a large coal mining operation in the Cumberland Plateau area. This is where the conflict begins, because with these jobs going to these convicts, because it was much cheaper, free miners were then out of jobs, obviously. Yep. Um, in 1890 the election of several members of the labor-friendly Tennessee Farmers Alliance came to the miners uh, and companies in the Coal Creek with, uh, excuse me, in Coal Creek with demands. Of these included payment in cash instead of scrip, which could only be redeemed at local uh, stores with very high prices, or could be exchanged into cash at a high exchange percentage. Miners also demanded that they be allowed to use their own check weighmen the specialist who weighs coal mm-hmm. and basically just determines how much they mined that day and how much they would earn. So they wanted to use their own check weighmen instead of the ones that were provided by the company. Um, okay. Since state laws already barred script payments and company hired check weighmen, most mine owners accepted the terms put forth. Um, however, Tennessee Coal Mining Company, TCMC, or TCMC, yeah, which operated a mine near Bryceville, uh, Tennessee, refused the demands, and then in, on April 1st, 1981, then shut down. 1981? 1891. Oh, okay. <clears throat> Sorry. That's going to be so confusing. <laughs> 1891. 
then on July 5th, TCMC reopened uh, using leased convicts from uh, TCI. This caused tensions to rise to new heights, and it wasn't helped when the company tore down miners' homes and then built a stockade in its place to house the convict laborers. Oh my god. I'm just... There's so many parallels. (laughs) Y'all better get into it. We're talking coal today, baby. Yeah, this is really... This is just going to be a coal-heavy episode. And I'm just over here laughing because, like, it's just beat for beat the same yep. shit all over Ugh, anyway so gross anyway um so on the 9th of july 14th a group of about 300 armed miners surrounded the stockade the guards surrendered without a fight and the convicts were then loaded onto a train and were sent to knoxville ah. so they were like get out of here this is kind of where i'm gonna stop talking about the coal creek war though okay um i feel like it's really important to the story but if I sat here and went over all the specifics of it, because it lasted um, over a year. It was a year and four months. Right. So if I were to sit here and go through all of it, we would be here for a while. The short version is this war went on for, like I said, a year and four months. So it started in April of 1891 and (laughs) ended in August of 1892. Um, This war was obviously started, like I said, to end convict leasing by these big coal companies and resulted uh, in the end of this practice in 1896. From here, Tennessee had to reevaluate their situation. They wanted to be able to profit off of the coal industry, but loved the idea of saving money by using convicts instead of miners. Right. And this is how Brushy Mountain State Penitentiary came to be. <laughs> okay. Okay. So essentially after this war, um, a law was put into place that would end the convict leasing system. And that Brushy Mountain Mine and Prison, which what it was originally called would be its replacement um at the end of the lease agreements some 210 inmates called brushy home the original structure was made from wood that was surprised built by those inmates shocker yeah um it remained this way up until 1920 when it was then replaced with the castle-like structure that it that exists there today and was constructed by stone that was mined from the quarry by the inmates. Um, Who'd have guessed? Who could have thunk <laughs> it? Um, during the time of Brushy's beginnings, through the through a point in time when Brushy stopped making their inmates mine coal, um, there was three separate coal mines um, okay. around about the Brushy area. Here's the thing. None of these places online can tell me when they stopped mining coal. Interesting. I went through some of the pictures that I took of, cause I took a lot of pictures of a lot of the plaques yeah, yeah. and I couldn't find anything on there either. So at huh. some point they stopped mining coal. There's a really good documentary and I'm going to put a link to it when I post my sources. It was made by WBR. Okay. Um, it's like 40 minutes, I believe I watched it last night, but it basically kind of goes more into detail a about the coal Creek war, Yeah. but it also kind of goes more into detail about the um, beginnings of brushy and all of the mining that they had to do there. Okay. Basically there was a lot of incidents because I mean, coal mining is very dangerous, Yeah. very dangerous. And I'm sure we're going to get into it soon. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but like there were multiple reports of like dozens died. There was a lot of like injuries where like, yeah prisoners were just maimed for life it's a whole big ordeal and it's such a like the history of coal mining is and i would also say the history of like inmate labor like that because a it's essentially slave labor 
Yeah. And B, people don't care because they think, oh, well, they're prisoners. They deserve it. No. Okay. The grand majority of those people were probably, like, small-time criminals at best. Like, yeah, yeah, I'm sure there were some people in there that did some awful things. But as is typically the case, it's usually just people that were convicted of small things, sent to prison, and then they get stuck in this cycle. Yep. And that hasn't changed. But that's a story for another day. Yeah, this is a this is a podcast about the past, not the present. Yeah, <laughs> which is still going on. Anyway, um, so basically, how the mining system worked at Brushy was, you had four inmates to a cell. Jesus Christ. <clears throat> okay, so and those cells are so small. Right, and you remember when we went? I'm gonna post um on t- when we post our sources and stuff mm-hmm. on Tumblr. I'm gonna include a post about all the pictures that I took at Brushy. If you want to add some on too, feel free. Um, Because I took pictures of almost everything whenever I went there for the first time. Mm -hmm. So I'm going to kind of include some of those pictures. But you'll be able to tell from the pictures. Cells are very small. There's two bunks. And you might be wondering, how can you fit four people in a prison cell if there's only two bunks? Here's how. Oh, God. Two of them would work... They worked 12-hour shifts in the mines. No. So while one set of prisoners were sleeping, the other ones were in the mines working for 12 hours. After their shift was over, they would come back, they would eat, and then they would go to sleep for 12 hours while the other set would go to the mines and work. What the fuck? Yeah. So people were working in the mines all hours of the day. I am just... I... I... I don't even know what to say. Holy shit. <laughs> like, this place is... Rotted. Rotted. It's such a mess. Like, anyway. Um, yeah. <laughs> th- this was a very common thing that they would do. They would stay on these rotational shifts um, up until when the prison stopped using the mine as a resource. Yeah. So, the prison is nearly encircled by, um, like, heavy wooded terrain. In the Cumberland Plateau. And this is coming just from Wikipedia at this point. Yeah. Um, so escape attempts were infrequent um, and almost always unsuccessful. That's the reason why they wanted to put it so far in the boonies. Yeah. Because, I mean, sense. you remember it's right up against the side of a mountain, so yeah. it was really hard to escape. Yeah. Perhaps the best known escape attempt occurred on June 10th of 1977 when James Earl Ray, the assassin of Martin Luther King Jr., escaped with six other inmates by climbing over a fence. If you, you know, if any of you all ever go, um, they have a museum section, and they have the ladder that they used to, like, hop the fence. (laughs) When you were telling us that they had the ladder, I was expecting, you know, a ladder. Like, two rails with slats in between. (laughs) It is... It's just a bunch of PVC. It's like half a ladder. Yeah. It's got like, so it's like piping. It's like piping materials like fitted together. I said PVC. I'm sorry. It's like metal. It's like like metal plumbing pipe. Yeah. That's what I meant. And it's like, it's got a hook on the top Mm -hmm. so that they could like hook it onto the fence. And then there's like, I think two rungs maybe. Yeah. It's crazy. Wild. But so essentially what happened there was very like cliche of like, they had some prisoners start a riot. And 
cause a bunch of trouble. And so while all the guards were over there, they hopped the fence. So Ray had escaped um, and was captured less than 58 hours into this like rugged mountain terrain of eight and a half miles from the prison. The prison closed in 1972 after a strike by prison guards protesting unsafe working conditions. Um, It reopened in 1976. Get this. Brushy Mountain was the only unionized prison in the state. Huh. The union worked closely with a state legislature to provide working conditions with correctional staff across the state. Under Governor Lamar Alexander's attempts were made to squeeze the union out of existence, but his efforts were fruitless. Um, Additional attempts were made over the years, but were proved fruitless also. That's a weird wording, Wikipedia. Many efforts to close the prison were attempted long before the 2009 closure. In 1998, Brushy Mountain Prison was administratively joined with Morgan County Correctional Complex. With the joining of the two institutions, both became uh, unionized. Okay. So, in 1980, Brushy Mountain ended its long-standing function as a maximum security prison and assumed a mission as a classification facility. In its final operations, it had a capacity of 584 and was used as the state's reception slash classification and diagnostic center of East Tennessee. It housed all custody levels of inmates, although it retained a maximum security designation due to the 96-bed maximum security annex located within the prison walls. These 96 beds were used to house the state's most troublesome inmates. The last warden uh, was Jim Worthington. I cannot believe that there were that many people in there. Like, having been in there... And I know, I know yeah. you said the thing about like the rotating shifts and stuff, but I cannot. <clears throat> ninety six people in that max security—that's like the one. That's that. Little wait baby a minute! One. Wait, 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 wait! Wasn't that one the one that was like up on the hill that we couldn't go into though? Well, that was death row. Oh, that okay. okay so, okay. I, so that was part. That of was probably right? that was that one where um they had that outdoor. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So that's that is insane. <clears throat> yeah, and also. Keep in mind, if you ever do go tour, they only let you go into two stories of yeah. the main like prison wings. Yeah. Okay. So there's two more floors that are up there, maybe three. I think yeah. it's two though. Okay. So there's there's a little bit more room than what you see, but it's still. It seems so tiny. Yeah, it's it's insane. So the prison officially closed on June 11th, 2009. Um, its functions were transferred to the Morgan County Correctional Complex. In 2018, Brushy Mountain was reopened to the public for tours, private events, car shows, and concerts. Brushy also houses a distillery that produces moonshine, vodka, whiskey, and liqueurs. Liqueur. Liqueurs. Very tasty. So, from here, I'm going to go into some stuff that we saw. Because that's just a general overview of the history of things, but going there and experiencing it is so amazing. Like, again... Very tragic. A lot of people died there, mm-hmm. um, obviously. Haunted as hell. Can we... I want to talk... Can I talk about the one that we potentially saw? Yeah. Okay. Are you going to talk about the hole? I am going to talk about the hole. Do you want to do that first? Sure. Okay. okay. So, um, basically from here, what I'm going to do is I'm just going to kind of like describe the area, but also I have... I went through and... I didn't do all of them, but I went through and added um, some of the plaques that I took pictures of. Okay. And I kind of wanted to highlight on those a little bit, talk about them a little bit. But I'll go ahead and I'll start with the hole. Okay. Um, so basically in the like basement <laughs> yeah. of this place, there was a place that was referred to as the hole. 
this was their version of solitary confinement. Um, so this is what one of the plaques says. There's two plaques for the hole. So um, when Brushy opened in 1896, the hole housed disobedient and dangerous inmates for days, weeks, and even months at a time, if the warden deemed it right. The hole wasn't just about solitary confinement in a six by three by eight foot space. It was far worse. Inhabitants were once treated to suspension torture, tied by their thumbs to pulley cords hanging from the ceilings, toes barely touching for up to 30 minutes. This went on until 1905. Yeah. 1905, when the practice was deemed inhumane by a state senate commission panel. The size of the hole was then in- increased to a 4 by 8 by 10 space when the new prison opened up in 1933. Luxurious. Yeah. It was still a dreadfully dark dungeon containing just a mattress and two buckets. One for water, one for a toilet. Ugh. This, was, this is the other plaque. Uh-huh. For roughly 70 years, countless prisoners marked time in the hole by uh, scratching tally marks into the wall. With no heat or air conditioning, little ventilation, and hardly any light, release couldn't come fast enough, even for the toughest convicts. In fact, it was so dark inside, prisoners would lose their vision within days. Upon release, a fellow inmate would be assigned as a guide until their sight returned, usually within a week's time. The extreme physical, mental, and emotional effects of solitary confinement in such dire conditions reportedly weighed heavily on Warden Joe Freytag. In fact, it is said Warden Freytag would visit prisoners in the middle of the night to check on them and their well-beings. Though not nearly soon enough for many suffering people, the old hole was finally shut down in the 1960s. God. Okay. So, (laughs) the hole was one of the first things that we went into when we got there. Yeah. It's in the same building as the like the museum stuff, right? If yeah, so right. the museum was like up top, mm-hmm. and then you go into the basement, and that's where yeah. the hole was. So we went down there, and it's, you know, it's in the basement. There's no, like, downstairs exit. It's literally, you just walk in, and there's, what, four or five cells? I think there's four. I think there's four. And if you go to the very end, up against the wall, the last one has this screen in it. And I actually asked my parents about this, because they went several years ago. And this the screen is apparently a very new thing. Okay. Um, so they have this, like, screen thing with a motion sensor. And when you walk up to that cell, it starts playing, like, a little video with, I'm assuming, an actor. But given that they, like, they hire former inmates to, like, do tours and stuff. Mm-hmm. I don't know if he actually was incarcerated there or not. I don't remember if he said that in the video or if he was just an actor. doesn't matter. Gives this little little presentation, and once it ends, it just, like, shuts off. Mm-hmm. So we walked down there, and we watched it, and then we walked away, and, like, we were standing at the end of the hall, like, getting ready to walk out, and we were the only ones down there. And it just came back on again, and I was, like... And, like, it startled me because the audio is, like, really loud and it echoes. And Zach just looks at me and he goes, that's on a motion sensor. I was like, we got to get the <laughs> fuck out of here right now. It was so spooky. It was very spooky. Um, I, love, did, I did not enjoy that. Love the hole. Not really. Ugh. So then, let's see. So I want to just read my favorite plaque. Go okay. ahead and get it out of the way. Oh, it was yes. located in the cafeteria. Yes. So the title of this plaque or whatever is called The Great Escape Guru. So this guy's name was James Slay, Slay, Slagle, Slagle. We'll say Slagle. Slagle sounds right. 
1970, a few years into his 318-year sentence for kidnapping and murder, James Slagle was looking for a way to escape the prison in a box. Since large containers never left Brushy, Slagle studied yoga for over a year and learned to masterfully contort his small body. With the help of kitchen co-workers, he squeezed into two 18 by 9 inch boxes taped together labeled 153 pounds of roast beef. (laughs) (laughs) That's so fucking funny. It's so funny. And the box was then placed among food in a flatbed truck. Once on the highway, he used the strength from his shoulders to bust out of the box and uh, jumped out of the back of the truck to his freedom. Unfortunately for Slagle, he was spotted by an off-duty prison guard out rabbit hunting and was soon back in Brushy facing time in the hole. Oh my god. So, for a little bit of context, I guess, because I didn't really go into, like, the, like, the city of Petros, it is small. It's tiny. It is small, and that documentary, we'll kind of touch on it a little bit more, but a lot of people who lived in Petros worked at the prison. Yeah. So, very much the, like, the cliche of, it's a small town, everybody knows mm-hmm. everybody, mm-hmm. but that's amplified to the max when <laughs> everybody's working at the prison. You'll know when somebody escapes. Yeah. Well, you think if he just, like, held out a little longer, if he just stayed in that box? I feel like, like he was a little bit too ready to go. I like, mean, that's fair, but was it... <clears throat> Did it say where it was going? Because if it was going to another town, he could have just waited. That's what I'm saying. He could have just waited. He was a little bit too eager. Yeah. He got ahead of himself. Everybody Uh, makes mistakes. I would say his first mistake was probably kidnapping and murder, but... um, That next one was a big one. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) I hate it. Okay. So then we will go into the, the D block which was the uh, maximum security area. So um, if you ever go, there's one big main building which housed, you know, the more normal inmates that weren't, you know, held under such high security. Mm -hmm. There was an annex, though, however. It's just this kind of building that's off by itself. And there's two little hallways in there that have cells in them. And there's also um, an outside portion with they're essentially just huge cages and uh that's where that they would go to get their exercise in for the day this is the um one of the plaques from the solitary confinement area so not the solitary excuse me the high security like whatever so um 32 solitary cells weren't nearly enough to serve a prison full of first degree murderers who were as violent on the inside as they had been on the outside um, when D-Block was maxed out, the most serious offenders were sent to a sectioned overflow space in, B- in B-Block. Life in solitary on B-Block was similar to D, with one exception, a, ser- a shared exercise cage. The entire prison went on lockdown as B-Block's solitary population walked out, on exerci- walked out to exercise. Excuse me. Considering these were essentially D-Block status inmates, Heading out for a few setups was a death wish. Once an inmate spotting a guy lifting weights pushed the bar onto the man's chest <gasps> just as his friend shoved a shank into his side. Uh. Uh, killers weren't the only convicts in solitary B. Um, there were also protective custody inmates isolated for their safety. 
dubbed as check-in, some were forced into protective isolation if death threats were made against them. Others, like convicted pedophiles, were often put in there out of fear. Either way, check-in wasn't something to brag about. Yeah. And then, um, this is more on the D-Block. Um, this is basically just touching on the uh, outdoor exercise cages. Mm-hmm. So, D-Block meant solitary confinement without privileges or interactions with any others, save the shift guards who brought their meals uh, to them to eat in their cells. Yet, there was a good reason men already serving time in a max security prison were assigned administrative segregation. They were incredibly violent, dangerous, or had tried to escape. Prison staff reviewed D-block prisoners' profiles monthly to clear them for release back into general population, but nine times out of ten, they were denied. Most spent months, if not years, locked in one of the 32 cells 23 hours a day with only one hour of exercise allowed in the solitary outdoor cages. Inmates could turn off the light bulb in their cell for some shut-eye, but the walks, that's what it was called, uh, the walk, the walks overhead lighting stayed on 24-7 and sleep was hard to come by because of the like humming fluorescent lights. Lieutenant guards let prisoners hang bed sheets as barriers to help them rest, but mercy was rare in the new hole, as it was also deemed. Yeah. Ugh. Apparently, I didn't get a good, I didn't get a picture of the plaque about the exercise cages but essentially what would happen was they would let them you know do their one hour of exercise Mm -hmm. um they would bring them out to these cages put them inside and then at about arm level and about ankle level there were some holes so what they would do is they would bring the prisoner in shackled put them inside the cage lock the door and then flip those little metal doors down unleash the shackles and then the prisoner could have their one hour and then they would come up at the end get reshackled and then let out yeah so a couple things just really quick this is one that i debated talking about but i feel like i should probably talk about it because um why not but this is going to be talking a little bit about the discipline um that took place here so brushy was notorious for its dangerous housing and labor conditions one of the most unfortunate facts of prison life was the manner in which the guards doled out disciplinary disciplinary action um, whippings uh, were a common oh. place and carried out using a four-foot leather strap attached to the end of a baseball bat handle. I forgot about this. I remember reading about this. Um, prisoners were beaten until welts appeared, then again and again, until those blisters were broken. Screams were routinely heard by the townsfolk nearby in Petros, and uh, countless prisoners slept on their stomachs until the wounds healed. Whippings, whippings, I'm going to last out like that. <laughs> Whippings were officially outlawed in Brushy in 1965. 1965. Can you imagine living near that prison? I can't, honestly. Just hearing that. Like, obviously, the people that are experiencing that are dealing with much worse, but just being a neighbor <laughs> and just trying to go I to can't. sleep and hearing that. The worst. Horrifying. I have two more things, real quick. Okay. One is a little ghosty. Okay. So. I couldn't apparently didn't take a picture of this plaque either, but there's one plaque and it's on the second floor mm-hmm. of the uh, just the normal cell blocks. Yeah. And essentially what it said was there was an incident at one point where um, the like the higher levels, they they had railings, but there wasn't any like chain link. F- there was mm-hmm. no fencing. So things could just fall over the edge. Yeah. 
Um, there was one incident where essentially a prisoner was jumped, stabbed, and then thrown off the edge Ugh. to his death. So me and my mom read that plaque when we went, and then we circled around, and then we went around the other end of this area. So we got about halfway down, and we didn't realize that this was the same row where the plaque was. Um, we got about halfway down, and then I just had this like very uneasy feeling. Mm-hmm. The entire time and i was like well my mom was in front of me and i was like okay let's pick it up like i want to get out of this <laughs> like I'm, I'm done like this area and speci- like specifically and about halfway through my mom stops and she turns around and looks at me and goes do you feel like dread <laughs> and i went yeah and she said i feel it too and i said we're getting out of here <laughs> and then we both like power walked to the end of the cell uh like the cell block so that was fun not really no. i was like this is terrifying you're also like really scared of heights right mm-hmm. yeah no thank you yeah no it wasn't, i didn't like those either no. the last thing okay we're gonna end on a, a high note okay okay we're gonna talk about geronimo oh yes oh my god <clears throat> So one I was of, like, how can you possibly bring us out of this darkness? And then I remembered. Well, I've got I got two stories to end on a high note. Okay. Um, so one of the most legendary of Brushy Mountain's residents was Geronimo, a wild baby fawn found by guards after it fell from a ledge into the yard. Despite his tendency to alert officials to illicit activity by huddling over prisoners playing, Geronimo was a beloved compadre in the 1960s and the prison looked after him for years he's so cute um with a known affinity for cigarette butts orange slices and lifesavers geronimo felt right at home inside the walls of brushy mountain um he was reportedly found napping in a prison cell once and even dined in the cafeteria it was said that the guards would never dream of releasing him back into the wild because the inmates would likely riot and to protest (laughs) These men did not have much, but, but they, they had, had Geronimo. Geronimo. What a good boy. I love him. There's pictures of like a guard like just like petting him. And he's so, so cute. He's so cute. Oh my god. That's pretty much it for Brushy. I thought I will... you said you had a second one. Well, so oh, this okay. doesn't really have anything to do with Brushy. I just wanted to tell okay. this story and expose Ira. <laughs> um so when you get to Brushy Mountain, basically, you walk in uh, to the gift shop, and that's where you buy your admission ticket. And you go inside, you buy your ticket, and then you can either walk or drive up to the actual penitentiary. We drove, whatever. That's not a real big detail. Yeah. But on the way back down, we were like, well, there's a distillery, like I said earlier. There's a distillery. They sell moonshine. They've got vodka, whiskey. They've got... They got it all. They got it all. The cures. <laughs> Um, so we were like, okay, well maybe we'll buy something. Like we're here. We might as well, you know, whatever. We're adults. And, you know, me and him were like, well, we're going to be moving together soon. Maybe yeah. we just get a bottle and split it. And then they do, they do like liquor tastings. And there was this woman who worked there who did the tastings and she was a very persistent lady. I don't, I, we didn't get her name. I don't think, but she was the best. <laughs> she was so cool. But she kept walking up to us and was like, well, what do you think about this one? What do you think about that one? And we were like, oh, I don't know. And so eventually she finally talked us into the tasting. And it was it was $5. And the stick was that if you did the tasting the next time you came back and you had your receipt, you could like present it and get $5 off of your liquor. Mm-hmm. So we were like, you know what? Why not? 
we got nothing else. I mean, we did have plans, but I'll get to that in a second. <laughs> so um, we do the tasting, and I'm very glad that we did because some of the things that we were looking at were not good. This tasting lady knew what she was doing. She even at one point brought over a like a coffee flavored monster and mixed it with this butterscotch oh moonshine. It was heaven. To die for it was so good. The blackberry though, we were gonna, we were like the blackberry would probably be good. It tasted like Dimetap. It was not straight up. It was not good. <laughs> it was not good. Thank God. God bless her. Yeah. Um. But here's the issue. Our assistant, Francis. <sighs> She doesn't have any blood. <laughs> and so this little moonshine tasting that we did, to be fair, though, this tasting was a little bit extra mm-hmm. because she was just chill. She was giving us straight up shots. OK, she had the yeah. little like one ounce, like little plastic cups. She was filling them full. So we were getting some shots. OK, five dollars for five shots. What a deal. I think she gave us an extra one, too, didn't she? Yeah, that monster one. That yeah. one wasn't included. She so, just wanted us to have a good time. <laughs> with God bless. Mm-hmm. But. Kara's lack of blood got her drunk at the moonshine Absolutely tasting. Absolutely turned. We had plans to go to the Appalachian Museum, which is, um, I think it's, it's, like, in, it's like an hour away. It's, yeah, it's like 45 minutes to an hour away after we left Brushy. But Catherine got drunk she and couldn't make it. she couldn't make it. So we had to go to Chili's and <laughs> soak up all that booze. Yeah, it was, it was so funny, though. So, oh my God bless her. It was a good day. But so yeah, that's brushy. What, I what a, what a tale. I recommend if you can make it there, go. Yeah. It is very much a fun experience. Occasionally they will have um former either inmates or guards that will do uh guided tours. Um my parents did one um probably a year before COVID started. So, um, if you can kind of catch them on a day when they're doing the guided tours, I would heavily recommend it because there's so much stuff that they could them they themselves can tell you. Yeah, I would definitely like to go back for one of those. Yeah, me too. And they also do paranormal tours, which I also want to go do. Um, but they're they're not pricey, but they require like a minimum group of people. Yeah. So I actually was talking to a friend about going to do that, and I we are not like paranormal investigators like we we appreciate these things yeah but i mean maybe i'm speaking for myself here i've never been on anything like that and i don't think that you have no i could be wrong so i feel like we'd maybe be out of our element but i mean if it's like a guided kind of deal yeah fine but if not if it's like a self-guided thing where it's like go look for the ghosts i feel like as if we'd still just have a good old time oh yeah I'll pop out the the recorder on my iPhone and we'll we'll find something. I thought you were I thought you meant like a recorder like you play hot cross buns on, and I was like, no, you can't do that because you snapped yours in half. You didn't Call have to put post. me on, you didn't have to put me on blast, <laughs> but okay, go off I guess. I, I found this video of you with that recorder right before like moments before disaster struck. Where you are sitting at my coffee table and you go, okay, I'm going to just start playing things and you tell me if it's in Naruto or not. <laughs> what? And you're just going, twee! <laughs> in like different configurations. And honestly, some of them get real close. Like really close. I've, I've seen maybe two episodes of Naruto too. So that's what makes it really good. Yeah. You know, I was, was on something that day. You, oh yeah. I think that was the day that we watched uh, Sorry to Bother You. <laughs> What a film. I forgot about that one. Yeah. <laughs> oh, my God. Ugh. 
Well, <laughs> Cole, you got Cole's cash. Uh, I wish I had some Cole's cash. All right. Well, that was uh, that was depressing. Thank you, Zach. Um, it's well, only gonna get worse. <laughs> yeah, let's get into it. Um, really quick. So, you know, so at work, um, mm-hmm. we have like these like taped down like um, like extensions to call other departments. Yeah. You know, procedure stuff like taped down to the desk. When we move, we just get a list of baby names and yeah. tape it to the desk. Seriously, Ugh. I just this this book. Tuesday. I would like to read Tuesday. I would Tuesday. It was in there Tuesday. Oh. I actually know someone whose name is Sunday. I know a guy whose name is Friday. They're just we you know they need to have a convention and get all the days of the week together. We got Wednesday Adams. Yes. Got Friday. There's that movie. What happened to Monday? What happened to Friday? I don't know. It's something about siblings aren't allowed anymore, and there's like seven sisters, and they all have different names of the week, and one of them gets kidnapped. T. T. I haven't seen it, but I remember seeing the trailer. Um, here are some some trends in the '90s for baby names. Girls will get more boys' names, such as the once male monikers of Kelly, Stacy, Kyle, and Brooke. Boys will get fewer names that could be interpreted as female. Baby names are also becoming more serious, so we can expect more of John, Amy, James, and Mary, and a few less Kaylas. Wacky spellings for ordinary names are out. Hey, um, Baby Names 1996 edition, you got that one wrong. That prediction didn't hold up. Yeah, Michaela Ann is quaking. All right, moving on. Back to the Cole's cash. Back to Cole's cash. Okay. Is script just Cole's cash? I'm going to smack you. I have to go. I'm going to smack you. <laughs> okay. So, as I said, we are doing a very Cole-heavy Cole heavy episode today. And I, you already covered a tiny bit of information that I'm going to do in my intro. But I wanted to start off with... Um, a bit of an intro just to like the general topic of coal mining sure as we have kind of already established i have this very like horrified fascination with stuff underground coal is no different oh yeah Um, we're going back underground we are going back underground it's kind of funny to me that like this is my my hyper focus because i'm actually terrified of the dark i'm almost 25 years old and i still sleep with the nightlight on but I'm probably talking about that kind of thing too much right out of the gate. We're only on episode, this will be episode five, but I don't really care because there's a lot of cool stuff underground. And when it comes to coal, I got to start somewhere. So I figured today would be the place to start. And I'm glad that I did because, you know, brushy, we have a very, like a theme today, you know? So let's just do like a general overview. Okay. Today, the epicenter of the coal industry in America has shifted, and it's not really as prominent in Appalachia as it used to be, but in as far as America is concerned, that's where everything really kind of kicked off. It's so it's something that is so ingrained in like Appalachian culture that it feels kind of weird not to talk about it because I feel like even in our topics that aren't specifically coal related, a lot of places that we do talk about are gonna have some connection. Okay. So yeah. anyway, um, so I just want to talk a little bit about my own personal history with it and like why I'm so interested in it before I get in. Okay. Sure. Yeah. Cool. Go for it. Okay. So my grandpa on my mom's side is from Harlan County, Kentucky. I believe the town is called Cumberland. And if you don't know, 
Harlan is notorious for its mind strikes and for its cold wars. Growing up, I remember hearing him tell us all these stories about his dad's work in the mines. He was never a miner, but his dad was. And so I grew up hearing him tell us these stories, and I kind of always knew that, like, that was part of our family history, but I never really, like, dug in and learned more about it until I was in college. And that started because my freshman year through my junior year, I worked at this place on ETSU's campus called the Archives of Appalachia, and it's a really great resource if you're ever trying to do any sort of, um, like, Appalachia-related history projects, any genealogical research. Um, it's wonderful. So, <sighs> this story is really sad. So, one day when I was working there, this woman called the office and she was asking for help because she wanted to try and find some pictures of her daughter who had passed away when she was really young. And she thought that we could help her because she had lost all of her photos in a house fire. Or, I think it was, it might have been a flood, actually. I don't remember for sure. But, um, she thought that we would be able to help her because she used to go to... I believe it was called the UMWA United... No, that's just United Mine Workers of America. It was these um, women's miners conferences. And they would get together and meet and talk about, like, childcare and women's rights and stuff like that. Just, that's a whole other story for another time because it's wild, the stuff that female miners got done. But anyway, this woman had taken her daughter with her to a couple of those conferences. And so... They thought that maybe we would have some pictures of her. And so I just had to sit down for a couple of days and go through all the pictures we had from the, the period of years that she had gone and see if we could find her daughter based on, like, this description of her. She had not seen a photo of her own child in decades. And she was calling because she was sick and dying and wanted to see if she could see her one more time before she died. And it was the saddest thing mm. ever. I never found a picture of her. I tried. Mm. I tried so hard. I went through every photo we had and I never found a picture of her. And I don't think we ever like heard from her again. But doing that really kind of got me invested in like learning more about this kind of thing. So basically, I got really interested specifically from that angle of women working in the coal mines because at the time, I didn't know that that was a thing that could even happen because I had always heard that old superstition of like, you can't have a woman in the mine, it's bad luck. And that is still kind of a thing that prevails today, even though women have been working in coal mining since the 70s legally. I mean, long before that, if you really want to get into it, like family mines and stuff like that. They didn't follow the laws, but it used to be against the law for women to mine. So after that project, I would like pull a lot of materials that I thought were personally interesting because they put me in charge of the social media accounts for a little while. And so we had like a Tumblr and a Twitter. No, I don't think we had a Twitter. There was a Facebook for sure, maybe an Instagram. I'm pretty sure they're all out of commission now. Uh, I know the Tumblr is for sure, but there are still posts up there and there's some really cool like photos and stuff. If you ever do want to look at that, just go to archives of .com. you might see some stuff that i pulled but i honestly when i was looking at it i didn't see any of the stuff that i scanned so maybe they just didn't like my choices maybe they were too coal heavy i don't know um but anyway that project gave me an excuse to just kind of sit and read about coal towns like in between whatever else i was doing and we had all these books essays and all these this entire collection of papers from this woman named Merritt moore who is the author of a book called Women in the Mines, Stories of Life and Work. 
And I read that book. I read a lot of her papers. She had a whole section in our, like, rolling storage where she had just donated all her notes and all these documents that she had used in her research and her interviews. The book is um, just oral history of, like, she just talked to a bunch of different female miners and, like, recorded their stories, and it is incredible. It's such a good book. If you can find a copy, I think it's on Amazon. I'll put a link. Um, I have a copy of it that I bought used for, like, ten bucks. It's, it's just a great book. So that book ended up influencing my work because I was doing like sculptures for my art program at the time about coal mining. So that like started the whole thing off. So anyway, I'll stop talking about myself now because this story is not about me, but that's just my, my background. Um, I feel very fortunate that I was able to work there and get access to those materials. They would let me, you know, take pictures of stuff, make copies of stuff. And if you do go visit, um, you can do the same. You can, you know, uh, a lot of the stuff isn't digitized at the moment, but they do have such a wealth of information. So if you go in and you find something that's useful, you can look at it, you can, you know, get your hands on it, and they'll make you user copies of just about anything for a really decent price. I think it's like cents for copies. So it's it's wonderful. You can get like music and stuff too. Um, it's just a great resource, and I was very lucky to get to work there. Um, I also took some classes like Appalachian Studies courses about coal mining specifically when I started doing my work on it. And I'm not going to talk about those a whole lot, but I did want to mention this one thing because it's something that I hold near and dear to my heart to this day. Um, we went to a lot of museums and stuff. We would actually go and uh, like see mining towns. We'd go to museums. We would go to one time we just drove our teacher would like rent a van and he drove us up over the mountain into Kentucky one time hmm. just to show us like a strip mine, like a mountaintop removal site. And you want to talk about something that takes your breath away. It is insane. It's just, it, I mean, it is what it says. It's the whole top of the mountain is gone. Wow. It's really, it's really bleak. But we would do stuff like that. And then we went to this one museum where they gave us these little keychains because in the coal mines, they would use this um, like check-in, check-out system where you would have a tag with your number and your name printed on it. And when you went into the mine, you would, I believe... You, yeah, you would hang your tag on a pegboard, and if there was, like, a collapse or some sort of disaster, they would use that pegboard to know how many people were in the mine and how many people needed to be evacuated. And so when we went to that museum, they continue to, like, make those keychains and give them to people that come on the tour. And so That's I have so one. Cool. It's really cool. It was such a, like, ugh, it's. I had it, like, as the pull on my wallet for a long time because I just, like, I loved having it with me. It's, it's just really cool. So... Um, I will look up in my notes at some point and post like what those museums were because I'm pretty sure the majority of them are still open. But there's a lot of different places like that that you can go if you want to learn more about it. But let's talk about what coal mining actually is. I feel like most people probably know in general how this works. So I again, I don't really want to get too deep into it, but I just feel like that also might be my own biases because I've been researching it for so long and maybe people don't know anything about it at all. So in essence, coal mining is any method of extracting coal from the ground. Um, according to miningglobal.com, there are three primary types. Surface or open cast mining includes strip mining, open pit mining, mountaintop removal, dredging, and high wall mining. Room and pillar mining consists of extracting mineral across a horizontal plane, creating a horizontal array of rooms and pillars. And long wall mining accounts for roughly 301% of all underground coal production. This involves a cutting head that moves back and forth across the seam of coal. The coal falls onto a flexible conveyor belt for removal. 
and um, this method requires hydraulic roof support that advances as the seam is mined further. So bituminous coal is burned to generate electricity and has been used widely since about the 1880s for this purpose. In this episode and in every subsequent episode pretty much I'm going to be talking about American coal mining specifically but um, similar practices are used globally with you know minor differences. In America commercial mining is believed to have started around the year 1730 in Midlothian Virginia from the 1980s until 2005, American mines made up around 20% of the global coal production, producing somewhere in the neighborhood of about 1 billion tons of coal a year. Wow. According to the National Mining Association, the average American uses around 3.4 tons of coal per year, and around 60% of the U.S.'s electricity is still generated from burning coal. In 2010, the U.S. was the second highest coal-producing country worldwide, and also possessed the largest coal reserves in the world. And now we are starting to see this shift towards more sustainable forms of energy like solar and electricity, um, like from, what is the word? Like hydro? Yes, hydro, thank you. But in 2008, George W. Bush said that coal was the most reliable source of energy, and that is still quite a prevalent opinion, um, especially in Appalachia where it's still very much um, a lot of people's livelihoods. In 2012, exports peaked at 117 million short tons and then declined to 63 million tons in 2015. For most of the 20th century, like I said, Appalachia was the center of American coal production, but that has since shifted out to the western United States. The Powder River Basin in Wyoming and Montana is the region in the U.S. that is now producing the most coal. In 2007, it produced 436 million tons of coal, more than twice that of West Virginia, and more than the entire Appalachian region overall, which is bonkers. So that is the general, some statistics, a general rundown of what coal mining is. And uh, now we're going to get into what my actual story is, which is the Harlan County Coal Wars, Ooh, also known it. as Bloody Harlan. Oh, great. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> For this story... We're going back to the Great Depression. On February 16, 1931, the Harlan County Coal Operators Association cut their employees' wages by 10% to keep from operating at a loss of profits. This was during the Great Depression, like I said, so miners that were working for this company were already living in extreme poverty, and this was yet another harsh blow to their livelihoods. Um, as we've said, mining is extremely dangerous, but there wasn't really much choice if you wanted to survive in this place you had to do it that was the best way to make money so there was a great deal of unrest with the miners and employees following this cut and the united mine workers of america tried to step in and unionize the workforce but of course this did not bode well with the mine bosses and they fired any employee that they discovered to be in the union or even suspected in an effort to squash the effort however this had the opposite effect, and most of the remaining workers were pissed and went on strike in solidarity with those who were fired. Hell yeah. In the cases of most mining towns, uh, mine companies owned everything. Houses, businesses. We already talked about script a little bit. Um, essentially, it was monopoly money that, yeah. that helped the coal companies keep the monopoly because, as Zach said earlier, there was... A really high exchange rate if you could even exchange it for cash and it was it was like everything was so expensive there was markups on all the products and there was basically nothing you could do 
unless you were able to like leave town to go shopping somewhere else but even if you could if you were solely paid in script like some people were you didn't have any money you know so yeah that was very much the case in harlan to quote wikipedia the coal town was established by out-of-state corporations and fueled by cheap labor provided by european immigrants who came to appalachia in search of work in the growing coal industry I don't, I didn't include this in my notes because I don't remember reading anything about it in these particular, um, in this particular story, but I will also add that in a lot of cases in the American South and Appalachia, coal companies exploited the shit out of black people who were trying to escape segregation. So who would have ever seen that coming? Who'd have thunk it? Yeah. In Harlan County, there were only three incorporated towns that were not owned and operated by the mining companies. Everything else was their territory. And when the firings and the strikes started, many of those towns accepted refugees from coal camps that they were trying to escape. There were politicians and business owners there who didn't like the fact that they had no control in the company towns, so they took pity on the striking workers. At the height of the strikes, only 900 miners were working in Harlan and 5,800 were idle. Those who continued to work and break the strike were protected by armed guards who were given full deputy privileges. Legally, they could exercise their power not only on the mine property, but on, out in the rest of the town as well. Yikes. <laughs> Thank you. Sheriff J.H. Blair was openly in support of the mine companies, and everyone in town was well aware of his bias. This, the following quote comes from Wikipedia from Florence Reese, an American social activist, poet, and folk singer best known for the song which side are you on which she wrote in 1912 at the age of 12 while her father was striking with the other coal miners um in 1931 during the harlan strikes she updated the song to the version that is well known today florence said sheriff j h blair and his men came to our house in search of sam that's my husband he was one of the union leaders i was home alone with our seven children they ransacked the whole house and then kept watch outside waiting to shoot sam when he came back but he didn't come home that night Afterward, I tore a sheet from a calendar on the wall and wrote the words to which side are you on to an old Baptist hymn, Lay, Lay the Lily Low. My songs always go to the underdog, to the worker. I'm one of them, and I feel like I've got to be with them. There's no such thing as neutral. You have to be on one side or the other. Some people say, I don't take sides, I'm neutral, and there's no such thing. In your mind, you're on one side or the other. In Harlan County, there wasn't no neutral. If you wasn't a gun thug, you was a union man. You had to be. And I listened to that song when I was doing this research, and it made me cry. So thanks, Miss Reese. Thanks. <laughs> uh, <laughs> she was an incredible lady. So as I said, it was called Bloody Harlan, and it was called Bloody Harlan for a reason. This is not the sort of striking situation that made primary use of signs or chanting to achieve goals. Those things may have been used, but this was during an era when company owners did not even pretend to give a shit about the health or the well-being of their employees. And... They only mattered if they were working. Once they stopped, there was nothing to be done but to mow down the obstacles in the way of making more money. Um, I really don't want anyone to think I'm being like paranoid or hyperbolic when I say this. It's very much fact. Um, the people who participated in these strikes fought tooth and nail for their rights, and they were literally gunned down by the police and by their employer's men, like the guards, just for the crime of asking to be paid what they were owed for their work. So, that is what happened. Um, <laughs> I'm starting to get really mad. <sighs> Private guards, police, and striking workers exchanged gunfire in the streets. Strike breakers, also known as scabs, were attacked and beaten by miners for their betrayal. 
What is said to be the most violent, unprovoked act by strikers, the Battle of Evarts, occurred on May 5, 1931. A group of miners ambushed a group of company men in their cars and shot at them. One striking miner and three of the company men were killed in the shootout. After that, the Kentucky National Guard was called to intervene, and the strikers expected them to help them because they were the ones who, while they had started this particular altercation, had more than enough reason. They had been provoked too many times. Um, but that's not what happened. The guard crossed the picket line, and on May 24th, after a rally was tear-gassed and assembly rights were rescinded by Sheriff Blair, membership to the UMW began plummeting because people were just... They just didn't know what to do. Their resolve had been broken. By June 17th, the last mine had resumed work, and it seemed that the Union effort had failed. But after the failure of the UMW, the National Miners Union, or NMW, tried their hand at helping things out in Harlan. And I thought this was interesting. They were a, an openly communist organization in Appalachia in the 30s. Interesting though that may be, that ended up kind of being their downfall. Um, they were a smaller organization than the UMW, but they were very passionate. Ten lodges were established in Harlan by, before they were even officially chartered, and they would do things like soup kitchens and bread lines, and they were trying to help people out and give them resources. But their attempts at walkouts and strikes didn't really go super well, and things fell apart for a number of reasons. This quote is also from Wikipedia, and I would just like to say, a lot of my stuff today did come from Wikipedia, but that's only because there is such a sheer volume of information on this topic that I needed something to keep me. Something concise. Something concise, <clears throat> yeah. So, if anything is incorrect on this, I apologize. I did look at a couple other sources, but Wikipedia really just had the best, most consistent timeline. But anyway, ultimately, a combination of events broke the NMU's foothold. Local labor organizers, many of them clergymen, learned of the communist leadership's animosity towards religion and denounced the organization. Young Communist League organizer Harry Sims was killed in Harlan, and the American Red Cross and local charities, who had been unwilling to take sides in a labor dispute, began giving aid to blacklisted miners who were unemployable, as the NMU's financial troubles necessitated the closing of its soup kitchens. So, in 1933... The 73rd U.S. Congress passed the National Industrial Recovery Act, or the NIRA, a labor law that authorized the president to regulate fair wages and prices that would stimulate economic recovery. Um, this seemed like a really good thing. It was part of FDR's New Deal and would have protected workers' rights to unionize and outlaw discrimination and firing based on union membership. However, again, it was not especially successful. Around half of the mines in Harlan were run open shop from October 27, 1933 to March 31, 1935. Open shop essentially means that unionization is allowed, but it's not required in the workplace. It would seem, because of the NIRA and because of that open shop um, acceptance, that things were kind of going in favor of unionization, but it was not at all over. Just because they were allowed to unionize didn't mean that the bosses were happy about it, you know? Right. So, um, Sheriff Blair, who was the sheriff earlier that was so in the pocket of the mine companies, was voted out in 1933, and he died in 1934. He was replaced by a candidate who ran on a pro-union platform. His name was T.R. Middleton. And uh, even with him in power, someone who seemed to be in support... Once again, on December 8, 1934, the National Guard had to be called into Harlan. Their presence was requested by the UMW organizers because they were being threatened by bosses and by deputies, 
And in again, instead of being offered help, they were escorted to the county line, which essentially what happened there was they called for help, and instead of getting it, they were kicked out of their home. Yeah. Hmm. As it turned out, uh, the NIRA didn't really have a whole lot of effect in Harlan, but the Wagner Act of 1935 worked much more in favor of the miners and was a lot more of a nuisance to mine operators. Um, it outlawed a lot of the tactics that were used by the coal companies to control and squash unions. And even with that, maybe even because of that, uh, by Harlan's standards, 1935 was a really rough year. Unfortunately, coal bosses were as resistant to national legislation as they ever had been, and the violence just continued. On July 7th, 1935, a group of pissed-off deputies dispersed a crowd of miners who were celebrating the passage of the Wagner Act that was supposed to help protect them by attacking and beating them in the street. Miners were stalked, their families were terrorized, organizers were shot at and had their homes tear-gassed, armed guards and sheriff's deputies patrolled around the town, and they would sometimes kidnap people for so much as suspected involvement in the union effort. Troops were deployed to intervene three different times this year, and on September 29th, the troops were finally sent in on behalf of the workers rather than their bosses for the first time in the entire duration of the Harlan County War. Keep in mind, we started this story in 1931. It's 1935. So, um, the governor saw what was happening and described the harassment and the brutalization of workers as the worst reign of terror in the history of the county. It's like, yeah, we, we done knew, sir. Oh my um, God. He said this in spite of the fact that a bomb had killed a Harlan attorney named Elman Middleton weeks before, and again, in spite of that, he continued to protect the miners. Here's the thing. That was like the end of the timeline on Wikipedia, so I had to do a little bit of digging elsewhere, and what I found out was that really wasn't the end. Just because the National Guard actually was finally called in to help them, it wasn't the end of their struggles. Um, it took all the way until 1939, late 1939, for mine bosses to finally sign their approval on the union. Four years after this incident where they called in the guard to help them. By then, the UMWA was powerful again. There were 400,000 miners they were representing, and they were essentially promising an escape from just these hellish conditions that workers had been facing for so long. And, like I said, that's not to say that things were perfect. Harlan and many other mining towns in Appalachia and the world over would continue to experience horrible injustices and exploitations. Nothing in this life, especially not in terms of capitalism, is set in stone, and unionization is no exception. Just because they had this one victory doesn't mean that it's going to stay. It's something that you have to keep tending to and keep maintaining, and though they fought really hard for it and they did win it wasn't over after that and that's something that is still very true to this day now i was talking about this earlier about how mad i got writing these notes <sighs> and i feel kind of bad because you know usually we have a little bit of back and forth during these and i can just see you sitting over there like i'm like i was literally <laughs> about to like apologize but i'm literally sitting over here like mad it's yeah <clears throat> this is it's ugh. I've been working on these notes for, like, I mean, at least since we stopped, since the last time we recorded. Right. And I just kept having to take breaks because it makes me so mad. And uh, it's honestly, it's one of those things where I don't know for sure. I would have to ask my grandpa about it, but I'm pretty sure that my great-grandfather was, like, involved and, like, 
around and working at this time. So it's it's unfortunate because he I googled his I googled him on like find a grave last night just because I knew that he had passed away before my mom was born, so I wasn't like sure what his name even was because they call him Rainy. But apparently my great-grandfather was born in 1890, which is wild to me, but he passed away in 1966, so like I never got any opportunity to talk to him. I'm sorry. What? I just want to interject real quick cuz I completely forgot about this What's until that? you just said great-grandfather. Okay. So, my great-grandmother's brother was uh-huh. in Brushy for murder. Oh my god. I could right over my head. Completely Whoa. forgot about it. Yeah. Oh, that's wild. He so cuz my dad brought it up whenever we went and I asked him about it and apparently he was in there for murder and until he died, which he died in Brushy. Holy shit. Um, he said up until the day he died that he didn't do it. That's fucked. So, yeah. Wow. I'm sorry. But no, no. Oof. I'm glad you got that in there because, <laughs> holy shit, we have some personal connections to our, both our stories hey. this week. But, yeah. So, oh, that that scrambled my brain. Sorry. I <laughs> No, it's okay. And I was like, on the way here was like, I need to talk about my like great yeah. uncle or whatever he yeah. is just wow. forgot anyway i'm so sorry no it's okay um so yeah i never really would have gotten to talk to him about it i would be curious to do that but you know he's no longer with us but on the topic of unionization and how hard it was for people to just get basic rights like i said this is something that still goes on today. People still struggle with this kind of thing in a variety of different industries, not just in coal mining. We've all probably by this point heard about the Frito-Lay protests where workers were striking because they wanted to get some relief from ludicrously long work days. I'm pretty sure payment was also an issue because when is it not? People are never paid enough for what they're working. Workers endured a number of horrible things, including what they called suicide shifts, which were two 12-hour shifts in a row with only an eight-hour period of rest between them. As of July 26, 2021, the Frito-Lay strike is over, but... According to Yahoo News, a two-year contract was drawn up that eliminated suicide shifts, guaranteed workers one day off a week, and granted workers a 4% wage increase over the next two years. 4% over two years. And I I don't want to disparage... Like, I'm disappointed, and I know a lot of people that worked in those strikes, like, tried so hard to get something. I know that there... A lot of people are disappointed, too, because that's... A fairly small concession. I mean, they did get some results, but after all that struggle, it's it's kind of disheartening that they weren't able to get more, I guess. Some said that they felt pressured into voting in agreement with the terms because they were running out of money and they didn't have any health insurance. Yeah. But I would like to say it is a start, and I think that their resilience and the bravery that they showed in doing these protests and in striking like that is monumental and they're very much inspiring other people to do similar things right now like i said we're recording this on august 22nd of 2021 nabisco is also striking nationwide um i believe i read they have like three bakeries and there's several distribution centers and i think at every location people are striking right now in the second quarter of 2021 mondelez nabisco earned over a billion dollars they had record-breaking profits during the pandemic and they are currently trying to cut pay 
and benefits for their workers in their facilities. During a panini. Like, what the fuck? Right in front of my Panda Express? Yeah. God. <laughs> like, oh my god. I, and I, I, I could really go on about this because the, these are not the only places that are doing unionization <sighs> efforts and protests right now, but I know that we were already kind of gone. I've, I've more than popped off already, so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to stop. But I would just like to say, without their workers, companies and corporations have absolutely nothing. A CEO sitting on their ass behind a desk could and never would shoulder the weight that their quote-unquote low-level employees do, and they don't deserve to be paid astronomical amounts of money while the people that are actually doing the work for them are living in squalor. By definition, according to UnionPlus.org, a labor union or trade union is an organized group of workers who unite to make decisions about conditions affecting their work. Labor unions strive to bring economic justice to the workplace and social justice to our nation. Unionization is not at all an outdated concept. Um, it is absolutely not something that is limited to coal camps or any more, you know, dangerous line of work. Literally anybody can benefit from unionization. And I feel like a lot of people don't know that, and you should. So make of that what you will. Take that to heart. I think that it's incredible to see the things that people are doing right now mm -hmm. to take back what they're owed so this is just one of the many stories that comes out of appalachian coal towns and just one of many stories about unionization i plan to talk about more of this as we go i don't know i i honestly like i said this was just my starting point i don't even know where to go from here but i'm really happy to finally get this one out because it has some very very personal significance um so I hope you enjoyed it, even though it was depressing and made me really mad. We're both heated. Yeah, I'm, I'm, really, I'm really fucking heated. But that is the end of that. Well. How do you feel? I'm so mad. Yeah. I. It's like you said, normally there's some back and forth. Yeah. I literally just sat over here in my chair this whole time just yeah. breathing. Yeah. Like, what uh, else can you do? And... I hate to say it, like, that is one of the more notoriously, um, it's kind of widely considered to be one of the worst ones, but it's, it's not unique, you know, it's not the only time that something yeah. like that happened, and I would say, um, I don't know what makes me more angry in terms of the coal strikes and such, the blatant violence or the blatant negligence, because there is one story that I want to cover about a flood that happened that killed hundreds of people that happened because essentially inspectors at like a sludge dam, which was like a waste, it was like a waste pond for like coal mine waste. He basically lied and said that the dam was safe and it wasn't and it rained and the dam broke and it wiped out a town. And I, I truly don't know what makes me more angry. I mean, it's all fucked. And it's one of those things that I'm glad that I've learned about it. And I am as much of a bummer as I know it is. I'm happy to talk about it because people need to know that it happened. Yeah, I'm ready. And people just don't. I'm ready for you to pop off because. Thank you. I'm. I have no word. Like, I'm so mad. Yeah, I know. Like, oh, my God. I have spent. Like so many times over the years just sitting and like fuming at my desk reading about stuff like this between your story and then my story with mm -hmm. the whole in inmate leasing yeah. like yeah 
Yeah, 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 yeah. I mm-mm, nope, mm-hmm. no. Yeah. So, well, <laughs> it's hard to be like, "What's your issue this week?" I, after all that, because clearly we have a lot of issues. Well, thank you for that wonderful story. Um, I look forward to the next one. Um, what's your issue this week? <laughs> um, well, speaking of flooding, it rained like a motherfucker this week. Yeah. And I... It rained on my way here. Yeah. I woke up and like went to take Brownie out and it was raining and I said, here we go again. <laughs> it rained so hard on what? Tuesday night into Wednesday mm-hmm. that people were kayaking in the parking lot of a restaurant near where I live. Yeah. And it was just yeah. a lot. I think that's my biggest issue. I'm so sick of the rain. I know I know we need it and a lot of places are having droughts right now, but um, it's a mess. Side note, there is this bridge that uh, I have to cross sometimes, depending on which way I go to get home, and it flooded really badly. Like, bad it was it was deep deep water and one time this happens a lot like whenever it floods in at all that bridge floods and my brother told me this story one time his friends went that way to go to taco bell and they were driving i'm pretty sure it was a bronco like a big jacked up bronco with huge mud and tires on it and they tried to cross the water in their big jacked up truck and got stuck and had to wait for someone to come and pick them up and they had to sit on the roof of the bronco and wait for help to come while their taco bell floated away down the creek (laughs) they lost a soldier that day oh my god yeah okay that reminds me one time um my parents and i were on the way to church and Uh it was like flooding yeah and we pulled up and one of my dad's friends, there's like this small bridge on um, the road on the way to yeah. my, where my parents go to church. And it's a bit elevated. Yeah. Like as you go over like the, it's a small bridge, like just a couple feet. Yeah. This guy that was friends with my dad got up on the bridge and couldn't get over the other no. side because of the water. So he was just sitting on top of it. Like, like you would like stand on a rock, <laughs> like in a, in a river. And my dad was like, do you need help? And he was just like. I'm just going to sit here until the water goes away. Islands in the stream. (laughs) Oh, my God. Well, Well, what's uh, what's your issue? I forgot. I haven't even told my issue. You haven't. Okay. So, you know, like we said earlier, we're moving. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, And also, like I mentioned a couple episodes back, um, the branch where I currently work is uh, shutting down. We're coming up on the end of it. I think I have like two weeks left. Right. And um, so we've kind of started packing things away. Okay. Throwing away things that don't need to be, get, like, that don't really need to be sent to home office or anything. Well, on the very top shelf of some of our storage, we had this storage bin that yeah. was full of decorations for, like, Christmas, Halloween, that sort of thing. And um, my boss hates holidays. He really? Hates, he hates decorations. He told me. He t- in his apartment, he has one painting on the wall. What? One painting on the wall, and it's because his sister painted it for him. As an art major, I am horrified. Like, and this guy's... Yeah. So, like, what? it doesn't make any sense, but he hates them. Apparently, people in the past, like, that have worked there have, like, 
bought these decorations and put them up. And then whenever he comes in for work, he takes it all down. Like he's a Scrooge. Holy shit. So there's this, this huge storage tub up in the, on the top shelf of all this storage stuff. And he was like, well, does anybody want this stuff? And I was like, I want the storage tub because I'm moving. So like it's a free storage tub. And um, it's the one that I brought today. Oh, by the okay, way. that's a nice tub. Right. So <clears throat> I was like, I mean, I'll take the tub, and he was like, Well, um, that's fine. You can have it. Um, let's dig through everything and see if there's anything that anybody wants. And it was just like cheap, like you can buy it at Walmart for ninety nine cents. Right. Like there were a couple scarecrows in there that I was like, Well, my mom might like them, and she did. She liked them. She put nice. them in her window. Um, but there was like there was a Christmas tree. There was um, a little snowman halloween decorations that you pin to the ceiling that yeah. like dangle down all this stuff he would pull it out of the box one at a time and be like you could really use this for decoration in your new apartment and i'm like bro it is the it is the it's august what am i gonna do with a snowman <laughs> oh my, my guy. god and so then i was having to like give him a detailed explanation as to why i wouldn't use the item until he would throw it away Holy shit. And that is my issue this week. That Nathan, is... I'm coming for you. <laughs> wow. Oh, my God. I've, I've never met anybody that hates decoration. He's such a Scrooge. Like, I don't usually decorate for Christmas, but that's mostly just because I'm lazy. Yeah. <laughs> you remember my Christmas tree? Do I? The one at the house that I had with Audra. I feel like I do. <laughs> we put it up for Christmas, the day of the party. Oh, yeah. And it stayed up until we moved out of that yeah. house in, like, March. Yeah, with the skeletons that you didn't take down from the Halloween party. That, that was Fred and George. Uh-huh, uh-huh. <laughs> and we put Santa hats on them. Oh, my God. Oh, the Santa hats. Those were also in the box. Ah. Yeah. Did and those American those? flags. Yeah, I kept the Santa hats. Oh, my God. So we're going to have a Christmas special. Are we going to do, like, a whole month of Halloween, do you think? Because I feel like that's what I want to do. Yeah. 100% yes. My friend told me this, like, local urban legend that I really want to cover. Ooh. I'm very excited about it. Because I Googled it, and I was like, this is whack. It's crazy. Like, I'm not going to show her to you, but um, I'm, I'm very excited for it. That's all oh I'll God. say. Well, It's like a cautionary tale kind of thing. Okay, yeah. work. Well, look forward to that, I guess. Okay, well, I guess we'll wrap it up because we've got yeah. a whole other episode to record yes, here do. in a second. It's so, been two um, hours. No, Jesus Christ. <laughs> so, let's go over our social medias, shall yeah. we? Where can we? Where can you find us? You can find us anywhere you want to look. <laughs> look under a rock. We'll be there. We'll be there. No. Okay, so you got uh, Twitter, TikTok, Instagram, and YouTube. We're going to be um, at issues underscore podcast. Uh-huh. And our Tumblr is going to be theabandonmentissues.tumblr.com. Um, or you can simply go to our link tree, which will be in the bio or description of this video. Yes. Um, you can go down there and find all of our relevant links, including links to our cited sources, all of our social medias, and our Patreon will be there. Yes. And there should finally be some content on our Patreon very soon. I would like to add, I had forgotten to add the Patreon to the link tree until last week. So if you've looked for our Patreon and it wasn't there, it's there now. Um, it's still empty as of right now, but I do yeah. have like two episodes that I am editing that I'm very close on that should be up there soon. So 
Don't worry. It's coming. It's coming. We appreciate any support. We're trying to chug it out. <laughs> oh, for God. Well, when we get listen, moved... We, we listen, both work full-time. It's a, it's a hot mess. We work full-time. We live like an hour and a half away from each other. Uh-huh. But like I said earlier, it's going to be nice to just walk across the hall. Yes, it is. So, get into it. Get into it. All right. Well, thank you guys for listening. Oh, oh also, also, what what did you have to add? The, the submission email. Oh, yes. I totally forgot. Yes, we have a submission email. If you have any stories that you want to tell us about anything, I mean, coal mining. That's a big one right now. Uh, ghosts <laughs> in abandoned houses, anything like that. You can send us an email at tellusyourissue at gmail.com. Any spooky ghost stories you want to share during our Halloween month? Yes, send us some spookies. I also would like to say our theme song is done by my brother Adam. You can follow Adam on Instagram at the Devil's Workshop Recording. I said recordings. Recording. Recordings. The Devil's Workshop Recordings. Uh, don't go to the recordings one. That's my new some, Instagram. There's going to be some satanic corn on there. So don't go there unless that's your thing. And yeah, I think that about sums it up. So We're done. <laughs> Zach is checking We're out. We're done. This is our last episode, I think. He's done with my bullshit. I quit. Okay. I'll see you tomorrow. All right. <laughs> Bye. Thanks, guys. Bye. <laughs>